The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. We have a common saying that we recite time and again when things get really bad. And it's this, when it rains, it pours. We all know it. You notice this sometimes, that things will get chaotic, and then they get worse. And when you think they can't get worse, then they just keep getting worse. And you go, what is it about this day or about this season? It just seems to be spiraling out of control. Or bad things seem to happen at the most inopportune times. There's probably not an opportune time for bad things to happen, truthfully. But it seems like your pipes in your house are working perfectly. You turn the faucet on, water comes out. And then you leave for vacation. And the pipes burst on day one and just flood your house for six days. Why, why is that? That it waits until that moment to break. A day earlier and it have been great. On Monday, I was nursing a hurt back, barely could walk. We then had a family dental emergency where we had to get a tooth extracted. As Andrea gets ready to take the kid to the dentist for this extraction, her car battery dies. So we get the tooth extracted. That's money. We go to replace the car battery. That's more money. And the guy that replaces the battery starts giving me a bad attitude. <laughs> and I'm like, what is it about this day that just won't end, it seems like? And then he found out what I did for a living, and he started, I'm sorry about the attitude. <laughs> I'm sure you probably don't get that when people ask you what you do, but I do a lot. I get it. <laughs> um, not only that, but like in a more serious way, we, we kind of have this... Uh, thing that we, we say like death comes in threes. You kind of notice this. There's nothing provable about that. There's nothing in, in the Bible that says that happens at all. But anecdotally, don't we seem to kind of find that tragedy just follows tragedy? And we tend to go through these things in waves. And they happen all at once. And, and sometimes when we get in those tragic circumstances, it seems to go from bad to worse as if someone or something is bringing this to us and has a plan for it. David, as we've seen in, in the passages preceding this one, is paying for consequences of his sin. And, and nearly everything to a T that is happening up until this point, and including this chapter, is something God told him through the prophet Nathan would happen because of his sin. Yes, even the story with the concubines and Absalom on top of the roof. Even that is told specifically to David is going to happen as a result of his sin. So David is very clearly paying for consequences to his sin. So there's really not much of us that really feels a bit of sympathy toward him as he's paying for these things because we know that all of these things are a result of terrible decisions that he's made. And yet, at the same time, 
as he is leaving town, being driven out of the land by his son, who is now taking over the throne, it seems that for David, things go from bad to even worse. How can they get worse? Well, this chapter is them getting worse, it would seem. David is leaving and he's being cursed, he's being deceived, his son is now doing all kinds of debauchery in the land and being advised to do so by someone who was his most trusted ally before. But I think as we look at this passage, it's important for us to go through it twice. So we're going to go through it once, and we're going to remember what's happening in the story and make sense of the details that are there. And then we're going to look again at it to understand what this passage actually is saying to us in 2023 as we watch David's kingdom unravel. First, I think we need to see that there is a theme of unraveling of David's kingdom as he leaves the land. It's happening right now on his way out of town. David is met first with people that served him in Jerusalem. We saw that in the last chapter. He's met with people that are his servants. People that have served in his household, people that were his friends, people that for one reason or another came into his orbit and served him faithfully, and, and they're quite nice. They're people that are dedicated to David's kingdom and want to see it flourish. But then, in our chapter this morning, he's met by people who served the house of Saul before him. So first it was his own house, then as he gets progressively outside of Jerusalem, he's meeting people that served the house of Saul. And then, at the very end of our passage, the camera shifts to this young heir apparent out in the wilderness of Hebron, coming into Jerusalem as David had once done many years before. So his kingdom that has been built around him as king is literally unraveling step by step in reverse order. So we're seeing this story play out as a progressive unraveling. But this isn't just unraveling, as in that it's coming apart. It's also getting progressively worse. This goes all the way back to chapter 15, when he's visited by Ittai the Gittite, who wants to come with David to serve him. David tells him, no, you need to go back. You, you, can't, you don't need to be out here with me. I'm, I'm going to be lonely in the desert. And there's nothing that you're going to be able to do out here with me. I'm just going to be holding you back. But Ittai, the Gittite, will have none of it. I'm going to stay with you, David, and you can't tell me otherwise. I'm going to go with you. So he insists on being his loyal servant. And then David is met by Abiathar and Zadok, who are priests. They come out to David, and they've got the ark in tow, and they, they bring it to him, and they say, hey, we're... We're coming out here with you with the ark in hand. And I, it's unclear as to what they're trying to do. Remember that it could be that they're wanting to bring David a good luck charm. Essentially, if the Lord is with you, then you'll be not harmed and you'll be safe out here in the wilderness. Or maybe they think, well, if Absalom comes into town, then he's going to capture the ark. And we don't want that ark to fall into the hands of Absalom. But either way, David sends them back into the land with the ark. And he's like, no, the, the ark is not coming out with me. The ark is going to dwell exactly where the ark is set up to dwell because 
that is the Lord's presence with Israel, and it's going to stay there. And maybe one day I'll come back to see it. But the Lord's throne in Israel should not be removed, either really or even symbolically. It should not be removed. And then finally, at the end of last chapter, David is met with this man named Hushai, the archite. And he appears right after David prays to God. Remember that? David is asking the Lord, Lord, if, if there's some way you can undermine Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom, that would be fantastic. I would love that, if you could just do that. And all of a sudden, Hushai, the archite, shows up to David as an answer to prayer. And he tells him, look, okay, you don't need to follow me. Actually, you're better served back in the land. And if you could, when you go back there, be a spy in Absalom's kingdom, then you can pass all the information that you learn in the kingdom through the network of underground priests all the way out to me in the wilderness. And then I'll have some inside knowledge. And that's how you can help me out. And Hushai, the archite, says, aye, aye, captain. And he runs back in at cost of his own life into the into the, the city to try to deceive Absalom, gain his trust, and then pass David information as he learns it. But you, you see, the last two encounters that he gets to of people on his way out of town are members of the house of Saul, and they are drastically different than the first three. We ended up feeling like, hey, David might make it, after all, on his way out. Because look at these people that are surrounding him that want to help him. But then we get to chapter 16, and we see a much different set of encounters that come to him. The first three were friends of his. Now these encounters in this chapter are enemies. Look at verse 1 here, as we see the first coming to him, the person of Ziba. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread and a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight my lord, the king. So the first member of Saul's former household that he meets on his way out of town is this man named Ziba, who is the servant of Mephibosheth, who is the son of Jonathan. And remember, Mephibosheth is disabled. He cannot walk. He's lame in both feet. And he is the son of Jonathan. And he, Ziba meets him out in the road with some, some food and some drink and some donkeys. Now, back in chapter 9, David had wanted to do kindness to a member of Saul's household because of a promise that he had made to Jonathan before Jonathan died. And he's honoring that promise, and he's looking around and saying, the Lord has so richly blessed me, 
how can I bless someone of Saul's household? And they found Mephibosheth, pretty much one of the few remaining people in Saul's line. He brings him close. Mephibosheth is convinced that David is going to do him harm because he really cannot defend himself. And instead of doing him harm, David brings him in and blesses him. He puts him, gives him a seat at David's own table, allows him to eat with him, and hey, as long as I live, Mephibosheth, you will also be blessed, and I will treat you with kindness. So now, Ziba shows up here, out on the road as David is leaving the country, and Ziba shows up with what would appear to be another blessing. So he's coming out, and he's giving David all this food, and I, I can almost read your thoughts. As I, was, as I was reading verses 1 to 4, perhaps a lot of you were thinking, cursing? I mean, he's giving not, David nothing but food and, and drink. and how it, This guy seems to be great. He seems to be providing David exactly what David needs. But the report that Ziba gives about Mephibosheth seems to be a false report. At least... It's confusing, to say the least. David is later going to question Mephibosheth over this very report, and Mephibosheth is going to say, he was lying about the whole thing. In fact, I was coming out there to see you, and he took me down off the donkey, and he went out himself. Which one's telling the truth, Mephibosheth or Ziba? I think Mephibosheth is telling the truth, but who knows? But the point is, someone in this circle, whether it's Ziba or Mephibosheth, is intending to deceive David as they're going out and, and they're looking for an opportunity to gain some sort of advantage by David's loss. Now that David is in a position where he's being driven out of the country, it's my opportunity to seek an advantage here. Now, if that's Mephibosheth, which I don't think it is, but if it is, then Mephibosheth is at home thinking, the kingdom is coming back to me. The reason that I don't think that's likely is because the kingdom is shifting to Absalom, not to Mephibosheth. In what world does the nation of Israel turn to Mephibosheth and say, you are our king, though you cannot go out before us in battle, which it seems like what Israel wants? Instead of Absalom, who seems to be the young, very strapping, handsome, strong man with good hair, who comes into the land as the strong man. Of course, the nation is shifting toward Absalom and away from Mephibosheth. So it seems that Ziba is out here using this as his opportunity to be given all the things that previously belonged to Mephibosheth by telling David a lie, misleading him. David has no way of checking up on this. And he just says, look, if that's what, how Mephibosheth feels, then you can have everything that previously belonged to Mephibosheth. Now, we never get a full answer on exactly what is happening here. And David's going to investigate it later. But I think we can read it as Ziba is lying to David and David's bad situation is being turned worse by people taking advantage of the situation and seeking to gain an advantage over him. So, one of the people that David meets on his way out of town is taking advantage of David while he's vulnerable. But for now, David gives all of Mephibosheth's belongings to Ziba. And then we get to verse 5. When King David came to Barim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, 
the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See that? Kingdom is shifting toward Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. So the second member of Saul's house, Shimei of Gera, is coming out to meet David, and he's using David's humility as an opportunity to pile on, to kick David while he's down. You ever have that experience? You know what that's like? You're down, you're having a terrible day, and at that point your friend tells you, I think you've gained a little weight. What about, this is your business, right? Is what you want to say. Now, in a much more serious way, this man is coming out. He's hopping mad. And he's willing to let David know exactly why. And according to Shimei, David had overthrown God's kingdom by eliminating salt. Now, did that happen? Was that the reality of what actually took place? No. Not in reality, but you understand that the facts don't really matter to someone who is mad. Have you ever noticed that? It doesn't matter. He doesn't care about the facts either. He only knows what he's seen, maybe even what he's heard, and he's coming out to David not knowing that David actually spent many years on the run from Saul, avoiding taking over the throne. In fact, that was Saul's concern, and he spent time running and, and avoiding that altogether, it doesn't matter to Shimei. David is just seen as a bloodthirsty tyrant who came in and he eliminated Saul and his house. And, and not only that, but after Saul died, remember Ishbosheth, who is Saul's son, was next in line, so to speak, for the throne. And Ishbosheth ends up dead because of some people that were loyal to David. So it seems to the outside world, David has done this regardless of what the reality is. That doesn't matter. He curses David. He throws rocks at him. And, 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 and for that matter, at all his servants as well. He calls him worthless. And then he attempts to play the role of the prophet. Here's what's happening, he says. God is finally giving justice to Israel because of your bloodthirstiness. Now, I will tell you this. It is not advisable to play the role of prophet saying God is doing X when you have not heard from God Himself. Just don't do it. It's not advisable. Shimei here is a perfect example of that. He is saying to David what he thinks the truth is, and he's connecting dots about what he assumes God is doing but he doesn't have a word from God. He does not know. And we find out, actually, he's wrong. We happen to know, as the audience, looking at what he's doing, he's wrong. He's not telling the truth. But that doesn't matter to him. He's piling on, and he's rubbing salt in the wound as he throws dirt and rocks at David and his men. But then look at verse 13. So David and his men 
went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. So Shimei, all the way out of town, all the way up to the river Jordan, which is a good distance from Israel, just continues to follow along beside them, throwing rocks, flinging dust, spitting curses at them until they reach the wilderness around the Jordan area. So they are weary, they are tired, they are specifically tired of hearing this guy over here the whole time cursing them out as he goes out of town. So again, this shows that David's kingdom, as a result of his sin, mind you, is progressively beginning to unravel, and it's getting worse and worse and worse as he goes out of town. So now, David is at the Jordan River, and track this, he's back where he started, out in the wilderness, being cursed by a Benjaminite. Sound familiar? Literally, everything has just unraveled. And the author of the passage is demonstrating that unraveling as David is now ironically back in the same position that he started out in the wilderness being cursed by a Benjaminite. Now, remember though, David had instructed Hushai as he came up to him and he said, I want to serve you. David instructed him to go back into the land and deceive Absalom in order to subvert the advice that Ahithophel is going to give to Absalom. So when Absalom comes into the city and he sees Hushai the archite, the spy that David sent back in the land, he's a little bit surprised to find Hushai there since he was David's friend. Now Hushai, for his part, greeted Absalom as if he were a loyal subject to Absalom. But notice that there's a double meaning in everything that Hushai says to him. Look at this in verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king. Long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Now, you can pick up on the ambiguity of the language that Hushai is very intentionally using in this passage as he talks to Absalom. He's being very careful with the words that he uses, politically savvy, you might say. Hushai says, long live the king, and you can see the double sense of the meaning in there. He's meaning the king, David, not the king, Absalom, because his loyalty is with David, not with Absalom. So Absalom seems suspicious, and he, he, he says, why would you not go out there with your friend? And then Hushai responds, whom the Lord and, his, and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. H who has the Lord chosen as king? Is it Absalom? Nope. It's actually David and then Solomon. Not Absalom at all. David and his son is Solomon. 
There's clearly a double meaning there. He means David and Solomon, not Absalom at all. But then even verse 19, which seems like he's presenting himself as a servant of Absalom, even has the underside because should it not be his son? Of course, Solomon is waiting in the wings, not Absalom. And of course, he means that he's serving David, not Absalom. But to Absalom, it seems like Hushai has switched his allegiance from David to him. So it appeases Absalom. So Absalom is in Jerusalem, David is gone, and what is the first order of business? It's interesting that Absalom gets into town and he doesn't know what to do. Do you see that? He has no idea. He comes into town in Jerusalem and he's like, okay, what's next? Look at verse 16. Give your counsel, he says to Ahithophel. What shall we do? Here we are. David's gone. What do I do next? What's my next order as king? Ahithophel, in verse 21, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of Israel, of all of Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed by both David and by Absalom. This guy's really impressive, he's really wise, and he knows, he's politically savvy. He knows how the land is supposed to work. He is the chief counsel of both David and now of Absalom. So apparently, the people of Israel are still wondering, what do we do? David's gone. Here is Absalom. What happens next? Absalom is even wondering that as Absalom is here. There's potential possibility they might work out a peace treaty. Maybe this thing will be settled in another way. And so the advice that Ahithophel gives to Absalom is take David's servants. And once he does, all the people of Israel will receive clear communication. This is how things are going to go from here on out. There is no peace treaty that can be signed once Absalom takes David's servants. We'll call them that. Once he does that, it's clear that he has made himself a stench to David, and there is no solving this by any other way. It is all shifting to Absalom. But remember, this act is specifically what God says to David is going to happen. David knows this is coming. Nathan has told him. Back in chapter 12 and verse 8, after David is busted, God tells him through Nathan the prophet, And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. That is to say that the transfer of the household is not complete until the entire house and all of its servants come under the possession of the new king. And so when they're in the hand of Absalom, Ahithophel knows what this is going to say to David, to all of Israel, and to all the servants of the king's palace who the real king is. So we end, that, we end the passage with this feeling of desperation, knowing that everything has gone from bad to much worse. How bad is this going to get? Well, we know how the story ends, of course, but... Let's say we don't. We're left wondering what's going to happen now. 
But it's worth taking a step back through this passage to not just think about the flow of the story and what happens in the details of the story, but what is that supposed to say to you, a Christian in a church in 2023? What does that actually mean to us? That's the way the story unfolds. In every passage, it's important, particularly in the Old Testament, to go through it and understand the details. What's happening here? Why is it happening? Who are these people? Where are they from? What is is this and that event talking about? It's important to do that, but we often stop there in our study of the Old Testament. We close our Bibles and we go, all right, well, that happened one time, and then we just walk away. But we haven't actually done the work of understanding what God is actually saying through His Word to us, the reader. In this passage, we're watching David's kingdom spinning into chaos. And David, who is specifically chosen by God to be king, has no control over these events. Everything is leaving David's hand. In fact, if none of this had happened before, and David's kingdom had gone really smoothly until the day he died, you might be tempted to look back at David's story and go, man, he was such a good king. Everything that he did was awesome. He had everything under his thumb. Would that we only had a leader like David. Now, as king over us, what we wouldn't give. While he's vulnerable, though, as things slip out of his control, while he's vulnerable, some like Ziba are taking advantage of him. Some like Shimei pile on. They kick him while he's down. They hurl insults at him and hurl other kinds of things like dust and stones. Still others like Ahithophel, see his vulnerability as an opportunity to betray him. For David, it has been raining for some time, and now it's starting to pour. Everything seems to be falling apart at the same time, and all of it is beyond his control. And when things are spinning out of control like that, What is the question that you and I have in our minds? God, where are you? Everything is lost. It's all gone. Here is this kingdom that you've established and you've put in my charge. And now it's being handed over to the one that you did not choose. And the one that you did choose is being driven out of town. God, where are you? Where are you? But I think that gets to the heart of why this passage is in the Bible. There are a million things that happen to David on his way out of town, just as there are a million things that happen to you on a daily basis. But these events are recorded. And why is it that these events are recorded? Because this passage is assuring us That even though the kingdom looks like it is unraveling out of David's control, it is not out of God's control. It is firmly within his grasp. And the reason we know that is because David actually gives us insight into what's happening here. The real picture of what's happening. And as we walk back through this story... With that in mind, that God is actually in control of all of this, even though it's unraveling out of David's hand, we start to see some real points that we might apply to our own lives. 
through this passage. The first is this. God sovereignly works through the wicked as a means of provision. God sovereignly works through the wicked as a means of provision. Here is Ziba coming up to David, and he seems bent on deception. Whether that's because uh, uh, Mephibosheth is deceiving or he's deceiving, one of them is deceiving, and they're bent on deception as they come up to David. But what does Ziba actually have in his hands? He has two donkeys. He has 200 loaves of bread. He has a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred summer fruits, and one wineskin. And David has a bunch of hungry, thirsty people following with him who are weary, trying to make it to the Jordan River. Ziba, in spite of the fact that he is coming to David bent on deception, is still a means of provision for David. He's still providing David what he needs. He plans manipulation, but God means provision. Now, you can look at Ziba one of two ways. You can see Ziba coming up to David as an evil guy who deserves to be put to death. Or you can see how God is actually using the situation to provide for his king and all of his king's people. And in reality, both are true. Do you remember Joseph who gets thrown into the pit? Do you remember why Joseph gets thrown into the pit? Why he then gets sold into slavery? Why he then ends up in Egypt? Do you remember why that happens? It's explained to us in Genesis why that event takes place. But there's two explanations. One explanation is the reason that the brothers have, which is sheer evil. They originally intended to kill Joseph, but instead they sold him into slavery, and they mean that to be effectively the same thing. Send him off to his death in Egypt. But then there's God's reason for sending Joseph off into slavery, and, and that is, for good purposes, to save Israel from the death of the famine. So it depends on what you're looking at, but if you look at this through the sovereign provision of God, then what you can see is that he's using even the wicked as a means of provision for David as he goes out to the Jordan, out into the wilderness. But second, as we look through this passage again, we also see that God works all things together for the good of his children. And who are we to question his methods? The reason that we know that this is how we should read this passage is because David gives a clear explanation of exactly how we should be thinking about these events. And he gives this explanation to his men. Shimei is out here cursing David. In verse 7, look with me. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? 
let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing, pay attention to this. If he is cursing, because the Lord said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones and flung dust. You hear that? D David admits that he doesn't know what the Lord's going to do through this. He's not looking into the future and saying, oh man, I'm going to get a whole lot for the, all the evil that's coming to me now. No, he says, I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but I do know that I deserve the cursing. And the Lord has told me that this is going to happen. And I know that this is repayment for my sin. And I, I know that he has sent this man out here to curse me. So let it go on. Because who could possibly question what the Lord has done? Now he caveats it with it may be. Precisely because he doesn't know how or when or even if God will repay him. But to help Abishai see that it's within God's possibilities of being able to repay for this evil done to one of his children an immense amount of good. That is within the realm of possibility of something God may do to his servants. And we don't know. But we do know, Abishai, that this man is out here at the Lord's direction, even though he's coming out here for evil purposes. He's still out here at the Lord's direction. He says, look, if this is God's appointed means of suffering, who are we to say, why have you done this? That's how David is looking at all these events. That's the lens that he's looking through at this passage. Who are we to question his methods? We are only to trust that this, yes, even this, is going to work together for the good of His children. But finally, as we look through this passage, we also see that God sovereignly works even in the situations that seem the most hopeless. The situation in Jerusalem seems very hopeless. Hushai the archite is out there in Jerusalem doing his best. We see him introduced only as David's friend. But meanwhile, here is Ahithophel, who is old and savvy, who has been David's trusted advisor, who is now Absalom's trusted advisor, and we're reminded at the end that his word was like the word of God to people. In other words, if Ahithophel said it, you could take it to the bank. My dad used to tell me, if I say a chicken can pull a freight train, hook him up. All right? That's Ahithophel. All right? His word, you can take it to the bank. And here is Hushai, just a friend of David. His words apparently mean not much to many other people, but he is loyal. 
Now his words and his deeds are going to be pitted against Ahithophel. Who is he to contrast this wise sage of the time? But what we're going to find out in the next chapter, spoiler alert, God doesn't come to Ahithophel overnight and make him dumb. He doesn't come to Ahithophel overnight and, and, and make him babble nonsensically. He could do that, I suppose, but he doesn't do that. He allows Hithophel to give his sage advice, his wisdom and his counsel. But he's going to elevate the voice of Hushai in the ears of Absalom. And the author of the text next chapter, we'll read it next week, is going to tell you that's exactly what the Lord has done. The Lord has elevated the voice of Hushai into the ears of Absalom. But it's going to lead eventually to Absalom's demise. So we're looking at this situation and we're going, how in the world is that whole thing going to work out? It seems hopeless. It seems against all odds. And yet, what we find out is that God is still sovereignly at work, even in the situations that seem the most desperate and dark. How could this possibly be true? But you know, it's interesting. We take this story of David. It seems improbable. God is working within. And yet it pales by comparison when we turn the pages of the Bible and get to the New Testament. It pales by comparison to what we see in the crucifixion of Jesus. You see, in the crucifixion of Jesus we also see that God sovereignly worked through the wicked as a means of provision. In fact, this is exactly what the apostles tell us is happening when they pray after they are being persecuted. In Acts chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Listen to this. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, that's everybody, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You understand, this is the most wicked act in human history. Punishing David for his sins and cursing him on his way out of town, you might argue, is justified. And I think you might be right. There is no justification for the murder of the Son of God. And yet Peter tells us everything that they planned, every insult that they hurled, every stripe that they gave Him on His back was all predestined by the hand of the sovereign God of the universe to bring about His crucifixion. And not only that, but through the hands of wicked men doing wicked things, 
putting to death the Son of God. That was God's means of provision for the entire world to be saved. There is no greater act in human history of God using wicked men to provide for other wicked men salvation than in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But God also works, as we see in the crucifixion, through situations that couldn't seem more hopeless. Because the cross itself could not seem more hopeless. Remember the disciples are following Jesus, thinking He's going to be king. I want to sit at your right hand and at your left hand. The disciples get their mama to go up and ask Him that, right? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking for. And all of a sudden, as Peter swipes at Malchus's ear and cuts it off, or his head misses and gets his ear and cuts it off, and Jesus puts it back on and says, Peter, put up your sword. You live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. The disciples have to be thinking, what, what, what are you talking about? As he goes in to be tried, the disciples are going, I don't know this guy. As he goes up to the cross, they're fleeing, they're running away. And as he's crucified and dead and buried by two members of the Sanhedrin, they're hiding behind locked doors. Not to mention that one of his own in his closest circle has betrayed him. Judas is the ultimate Ahithophel. And yet, in the situation that couldn't seem more desperate, couldn't seem more dark, you talk to the disciples who are hiding behind the closed doors, what are they thinking? During, on Saturday morning, when the person they're following is now in the tomb that they thought was going to be king, this has shaken the apple cart. All right? Who knows what they're thinking, but it's got to be something like, well, we were wrong somewhere, but where? I watched this man walk on water. I watched him multiply bread for thousands of people. I watched him calm the seas and the storm. How could this happen? The situation couldn't seem more dark. They have no idea what God is accomplishing or is about to accomplish in that tomb. When on Sunday morning, Jesus gets up from the grave and walks out. Taking the wrath of God on his own shoulders as punishment for you and for me. And then on the third day, rises from the dead because there is no reason death can hold him if sin has been atoned for. And he walks out. And he offers to us forgiveness of sin before God and the hope of eternal life by his resurrection but the disciples and on Saturday couldn't possibly have conceived that that would happen. They couldn't put that together even after his resurrection and his ascension until much later. You understand that in our lives, often things look like they are unraveling, they look like they are spiraling out of control. But the reason that everything looks like it's unraveling to you is because you're not in control. 
You're not in control. But you see, the moments in your life where everything seems to unravel is actually a blessing. Now, I know what you're thinking. You come home from vacation and you find your floors are flooded. The first thing you're thinking is not, what a blessing. Right? When you go from one thing happening to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing, you're not thinking first off that this is a blessing. But the reason that it's a blessing is because God is giving you, at that moment, a glimpse into reality. And the reality is, you control nothing. You're not in control. But he's also giving you a glimpse into the reality. He is. When everything was perfect, when everything was going smoothly, you spent the time thinking to yourself, well, this is great. I'm tracking with everything. I've got everything under my thumb. And then your kid runs off, rejecting Christ and cursing you on his way out the door. And you think, wait, where was that control that I had? I, I, thought, I thought I had everything. But there's the realization that you don't. We commonly will say to each other in the midst of suffering, God has a plan. This doesn't escape God's notice. God is in control. You know what we rarely say in the midst of suffering? I'm not. I'm not in control. But can we come to a point where we realize I'm frail. I'm the creature here. I depend on Him. Yes, He is in control. That's always true. He's in control. But now I'm coming to realize I'm not. I don't have the right to secure any of this for myself. He can take all of it. If he wants, he's God, he can do that. He can leave me with nothing if he wants. He has the right to do that too. Maybe, just maybe, that some of these events that happen in our life where everything begins to unravel are God's good intention to you instead of his cursing. Have you thought about that? That maybe this too he's working for your good. To help you realize not only that he's in control, but that you very much are not. That you still need him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for its meaning. We're grateful for the hope that it gives to us. We're grateful for humility and the humility that you bring to us. I pray only now that as we take of this cup and this bread, that you will again remind us of our need for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday nights at 615.